Hey, I just want to know, am I the only one that gets like goosebumps when I sing that song? I mean, every once in a while a song comes around, right, that just seems to have a special anointing on it. And, um, and maybe it's the season in which we live, I'm not sure, but uh, I just love that song and how it so honors the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's such a great reminder to us that uh, we do live in a sin-cursed broken down world where things are just twisted and crooked and just not right. But um, God hasn't left us here uh, to fend for ourselves and he's promised to come back and to make everything right someday. And um, in the meantime, we we sing and we trust and we uh, pursue him. Um, and I think what I, one of the things I like about that song is it's very creative in that um, it uniquely um, asks us questions, right? That's typically not how you sing a song. Um, you just kind of make statements and sing things. But I love the rhetorical questions uh, over and over again that are asked in that, in that um, song. And I think that is a very creative, very compelling way to teach truth is through questions. Instead of making a, just a, a, a blunt statement, just ask a question. And oftentimes that teaches um, even more powerfully uh, what you want to get across than if you were to make the statement. And I think a good example of that is found in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want you to turn there with me in your Bibles this morning. Um, and this was a, a passage that uh, the Lord had brought to my mind here in the last few weeks. And I've been thinking about it, and I thought I would share it with you this morning, and uh, especially in light of uh, the continued uh, uh, perseverance that uh, the Lord's requiring of us in this whole coronavirus pandemic, and um, I just think this is another great passage to help us to maintain our perspective, and um, it's, a, it's an obscure passage, I would say, that would be very easily missed Skipped, skipped over, but I'm referring to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, starting in verse 13, and here's the question. Consider the work of God, here it is, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Father, it's been good for us to worship you this morning through song, and now we get to worship you as we listen to you speak to us through your word. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we meditate upon your sovereignty over suffering, um, not just the coronavirus, but Lord, most of us had things in our lives before this ever happened that were causing us frustration or depression or despair. And even when the coronavirus may pass, they're, they're still gonna be there in our lives. And so uh, this is truth for the road here. And I pray that your spirit would illuminate our minds and our hearts to understand and to make application of this passage in our lives for such a time as this, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, when I was in seminary, I developed a fascination uh, with and an appreciation for the Puritans. And um, we mentioned last week, J.I. Packer uh, is now in heaven. Uh, some uh, considered him the last Puritan, and uh, he stumbled upon the Puritans when he was a student at Oxford University uh, during his college years, and uh, the Christian organization that he was a part of that God used to lead him to Christ asked him to be the librarian for all of their Christian resources, and apparently they had a lot of Puritan books, and uh, he discovered the Puritans, and uh, he later on in life uh, ended up writing a book, I mentioned it last week, called The Quest for Godliness, uh, The Puritan's Vision for the Christian Life. And in that book, he, he likens the Puritans to the redwoods of the Christian faith. And if you've ever been um, to the California coast and you've all seen the redwoods, and these are just these massive trees that uh, while we have some beautiful trees here in the, the piney woods of Texas, right? I mean, they're like, toothpicks compared to the redwoods in California. And so the idea was that, that these, these Puritans are just, you walk into the redwood grove of these Puritans and you just, you're astounded at the size and, and, and the girth of, these, uh, of, of, the, of, of, the, of the stumps or the trunks of these trees and, and how high they go up and you're just, and you're dwarfed by them. And, and that's how I've always felt about the Puritans. I've always felt dwarfed uh, spiritually speaking, to these giants of the faith. And so I was so intrigued uh, when I was in seminary by them, I requested uh, permission from the, the church history professor uh, if I could do a directive study so I could just spend some time uh, with these godly, faithful pastors who ministered in the Church of England during the days of the Protestant Reformation. We're talking 1550 to 1750. And so that just uh, cultivated a, a love uh, in my heart for uh, the Puritans. And over the years, I've acquired quite a few books um, written about the Puritans and books written by the Puritans, and it's become one of my most treasured sections in my, in my library. And uh, the titles alone of, of the, the, the books written by the Puritans communicate that these guys were on a whole different level when it comes to zeal and devotion. Um, let me just read a couple titles for you. Uh, An Alarm to the Unconverted. Heaven Taken by Storm. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The Almost Christian Discovered. In fact, I never forget a, uh, an experience I had with a fellow pastor that I uh, just am very fond of and I have a great deal of respect for and always felt humbled by his presence because he was so godly and so committed to his uh, ministry. And I remember meeting him in a bookstore and he was telling me uh, with great sober sobriety that he was reading this book, The Almost Christian Discovered, and he was beginning to question whether or not he was truly saved. And this was like one of the most committed pastors I'd ever met. And it just shows how, how these guys were so serious about getting into the nooks and crannies of your heart with the truth of God's word and to really challenge you to really think um, 
are you truly saved or are you an almost Christian? Um, well, one of the Puritan books on my shelf, um, maybe the most, the one with the most interesting title is The Crook in the Lot. Anybody ever heard of that book, The Crook in the Lot? Um, the subtitle, and they were, the, the Puritans were always famous for their subtitles. They, they were like almost a sentence long. But this one is, The Crook in the Lot, The Sovereignty and Wisdom of God Displayed in the Afflictions of Men. The Sovereignty and Wisdom of God Displayed in the Afflictions of Men. In fact, the, the, the updated, uh, reprinted copy that I have uh, on the cover has a picture of the Twin Towers. And it was republished uh, right after 9-11 because uh, the publisher felt that this whole concept of the crook in the lot, the sovereignty and wisdom of God displayed in the afflictions of men had lots of application for uh, that national crisis that we went through back, um, back in, um, on 9-11. Well, the crook in the lot was written by a Scottish Presbyterian minister and theologian named Thomas Boston who faithfully shepherded a small rural church for about 25 years. And uh, this dedicated pastor was often in poor health. His wife suffered from chronic illness. But what was perhaps this godly couple's greatest trial was the death of their children. They lost six of their 10 babies. Can you imagine that? But rather than get bitter at God and abandon his faith or drop out of the ministry, he turned to the Lord for help and for comfort, and he found great solace in God's sovereignty. Spurgeon was the one who said this, there is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. Do you believe that? I would agree. There's no attribute of God in my life that is more comforting than the sovereignty of God. Well, The Crook in the Lot was one of the last resources that Brooks published before he died. It's really just a sermon that he preached on the sovereignty of God based on the command and the question in verse 13. Consider the work of God for who is able to straighten what he has bent. And so that's where he got the title, The Crook in the Lot. And the point to make it a little clearer, the point of his sermon is summarized in this quote. This is what he was getting to in that sermon and in, in this book. He said this, quote, there is a certain train or course of events by the providence of God falling to every one of us during our life in this world. And that is our lot. We're familiar with that expression, right? Our lot in life. He says, as being allotted to us by the sovereign God. By and by, there is some incident which alters that course, grates us, and pains us. Everybody's lot in this world has some crook in it. There is no perfection here, no lot out of heaven without a crook. In other words, the fact that we live in an imperfect world right, where that perfection was, that original perfection was spoiled by sin, 
And so what that means is that we all have uh, our lot in life and there are things in all of our lives, whether that's problems or difficulties or ailments or limitations or frustrations that we wish were different or that we could change, but we can't. To bring it home this morning, it could be for you an unexpected, unwanted divorce. It, it could be a, a wayward child. It could be a, um, a, a diagnosis of cancer. Philip Ryken says this in his commentary on this particular text. He said, quote, we have something that we wish we did not have or do not have something that we wish we did. Isn't that true? I think that, that applies to every single person in this room. We have something in our lot in life, right, that we wish we did not have or do not have something we wish we did. Sooner or later, there is something in life that we wish had a different shape to it. And then he asked this penetrating question. What is the one thing that you would change in your life if you had the power to change it? Have you ever asked yourself that question? That's a very revealing question. It really exposes what may be the idol of our hearts. If there was one thing that you would change in your life, if you had the power to change it, what would that be? Did you think of something? Did something come to your mind? The fact of the matter is there are some things in life that we can't change because they're exactly the way God ordained them to be. They must remain permanently bent or crooked. Now, this is not news to you, but I'm a perfectionist. Um, I hate stuff that is bent or crooked. I've been known to walk into a hotel room and immediately straighten any crooked picture that's on the wall or center the lamp on the um, nightstand or straighten out the shade so it's not crooked. Um, I like neat straight lines. I like everything at a right angle, right? Um, you may see me come up here before church and make sure the pulpit's at a right angle with it, not crooked, and I'm just, that's just who I am. <laughs> this is, it's part of me, okay? I'm a sinner. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the point is, I tend to get irritated or depressed when things aren't perfect in my life. And uh, that's why my wife wouldn't let me fix the dent in the back of our car that I put there because I backed up into a pickup truck that was sticking out too far and I wasn't watching what I was doing and she wouldn't let me pay the, what's that thing? You have to pay the deductible. Thank you, yeah. I don't even know what it's called. A, <laughs> wouldn't let me pay the deductible to get it fixed. You know, it's, hey, it's, we're going to heaven. This is Everything's imperfect. And so God is using my wife to sanctify me and remind me that uh, there's nothing perfect uh, in this earth. And that's why we look forward to going to heaven, right? If everything was perfect, we wouldn't need heaven. Wouldn't, wouldn't long for heaven. But one of the most convicting and at the same time comforting principles that is taught in this peculiar and often perplexing Old Testament book we know as Ecclesiastes is this. You ready? 
Life is not perfect, so get over it and enjoy it. Life's not perfect, so get over it and enjoy it. Now, to some of you, that might seem pessimistic or sound fatalistic, but that's a very realistic view of life that Solomon presented here in this personal journal um, that he um, that, that he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, this is really the, the spirit-inspired memoirs of King Solomon's passionate search for true meaning and happiness uh, in the things of this world. And he found out the hard way that nothing this world has to offer can fill the God-shaped void in every person's heart except God himself. And apart from a relationship with God, life does not make any sense at all. And the maddening pursuit of worldly pleasures leaves a person feeling empty and unhappy. But when a person looks beyond this world and realizes that there is a God who's to be honored and obeyed and that life is a gift from him and that the key to fully enjoying the life that God has given us is to honor and obey him, then life becomes truly meaningful. Life becomes truly fulfilling. That's the message of the book of Ecclesiastes and, and, and this book would be very depressing were it not for the fact that Solomon intended to show us how to truly enjoy life in an imperfect world. Go back to the beginning with me just for a moment and I want you to see this theme that is weaved throughout this, this unique book. In chapter two, verse 24, Solomon writes, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that is from the hand of God for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Chapter three, verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. Chapter five, verse 18. Here it is. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart." Chapter eight, verse 15. So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. Chapter nine, verse seven. Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life which she has given to you under the sun for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. And then lastly in chapter 11 verse nine, Notice he says, rejoice, young man, during your childhood and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. And so lest anyone 
classify Solomon's memoirs as the cynical ramblings of a confused, depressed skeptic. He's sure to emphasize, he was sure to emphasize her that, that life is a gift from God to be enjoyed. And the words for joy and gladness and pleasure and rejoice appear 17 times throughout this, this book. And while it may sound like it's all about the frustration of life, it's really a celebration of life. I found it interesting that Ecclesiastes is traditionally read in Jewish synagogues during the annual Feast of Tabernacles, which is a time of joyous celebration, which to me is evidence that the Jews never considered this a negative, pessimistic book, or they would never read it on such a happy occasion. It would be like a, a, a downer. It would be a party pooper kind of thing to be reading at the, tabern- at the Feast of the Tabernacles. One commentator has described the book of Ecclesiastes as the Philippians of the Old Testament. What, what is the theme of Philippians, remember? Joy. And so this is the, this is the joy book of the Old Testament. In fact, I was reading some um, uh, eulogies, I guess, uh, uh, regarding uh, uh, on the life of J.I. Packer. And um, in fact, this was an article that he, he actually wrote before he died. And he said that uh, his favorite book of the Bible was Ecclesiastes. Because as a young man, he was on the verge of becoming a skeptic, uh, a cynic. And uh, it was really through his study of the book of Ecclesiastes that he learned to have joy, true joy in life. If you know anything about Ecclesiastes, I'm sure some of you have studied this, read this. Um, In the the first six chapters, uh, Solomon described what life is like without God. And he had a phrase that he used um, 29 times in the first half of the book. You remember what that phrase is? To talk about life without God? He described life under what? The sun. Like the sun, not the son of God, but the sun. In other words, life here on earth. Uh, Chapter one, verse three. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Verse nine. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Verse 14, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Chapter two, verse 11, this, thus I consider all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. And so he goes on th- throughout the first six chapters making reference to life under the sun. But from chapter seven on, and that's where we're at, right? We find our text this morning in chapter seven. And so from this chapter on, his focus becomes less man-centered and more God-centered. In other words, he goes to looking at life from uh, no longer under the sun, but above the sun. Now let's look at life. Okay, we looked at life uh, without God. Now let's look what life looks like with God. In other words, let's get beyond the sun to heaven where God exists and let's talk about what life is like with him. In the first part of the book, he described his, his foolish, futile quest to find meaning and happiness apart from God. 
And now in the last part of his memoirs, he described how he wised up and returned to the Lord. And one evidence of this, this shift here, and this is really the, the hinge here, chapter six and seven, on which this entire book turns, um, the, the, the frequent references or, or occurrences of the words wise or wisdom, which appear some 35 times in the, the, the second half of the book. And chapter seven opens up with a series of proverbs that offer a, a godly perspective on dealing with life. And Solomon was just following up the rhetorical question he asked at the end of chapter six. Notice he says in verse 11, for there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? And that was the climax of chapter six, which is one of the darkest, most depressing chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes and possibly the entire Bible. And Solomon was just being honest about how life is full of mysteries and puzzles that seem to make no sense and seem to have no solution. Things like coronavirus pandemics, right? And so when we face perplexing problems in our lives, it sometimes makes us wonder if life is even worth living. That's how bad it had gotten in Solomon's uh, pursuit of happiness apart from the Lord and he was trying to unravel some of the mysteries of life and he listed a series of frustrations and disappointments that he experienced in his own life that left him questioning what life was really all about. And in chapter six, we, we, we see these things, these frustrations of life without God. What are they? Well, without God, life's blessings can't be enjoyed he talks about that in verses one through six of chapter six. And then in verses seven and nine, he, he talks about how without God, life's cravings can't be satisfied. And then finally, he ends in chap, uh, verses 10, 11, and 12 that without God, life's questions can't be answered. In other words, if you don't have God in your life, these three things will frustrate you throughout your life and make you wish that you were dead or that you were never born. That's what he's saying in chapter six. But again, look at, it, look at verses 11 and 12. For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? In other words, what's the point? Well, what's the, what's the, what's the advantage to being a, a human being? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life. You'll spend them like a shadow for who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun. The point is we have a, have a limited ability to fathom the present and we have no ability to foresee the future. Which leaves us with many unanswered questions about life and death. In other words, we ask what Good is my life accomplishing and what will happen to me when my life is over? That's essentially what he's saying. Why am I here and where am I going? That's the classic questions of, of life, is not? Why am I here and, and where am I going? And when we look at life from a purely earthly perspective, it, it poses plenty of questions but not a whole lot of answers. But when we look 
at life wisely above the sun, and we realize there's a God who has a perfect plan for our lives, then we avoid becoming cynical or skeptical about life. And while your life may not be perfect, you can live with the confidence that God's plan for your life is perfect. Did you get that? Your life may not be perfect, and it's not. None of our life is perfect. But we can live with the confidence that God's plan for our life is perfect, amen? And God, in fact, God's perfect plan includes the imperfections in our lives that tend to frustrate us and depress us. We think we know what's good for us, but God knows better. In fact, Solomon makes that point here in, in chapter seven. The words good and better occur in these verses more times than any other chapter in the Old Testament. Notice verse one, a good name is better than a good, than good, than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes its heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. Verse five, it is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song, uh, long, listen to the song of a fool. In other words, it's better to hear constructive criticism than let, just let somebody flatter you all the time tell you what you want to hear. Verse eight, the end of the matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Verse 10, do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. And ultimately, the point of this section is to consider, that's the first word of verse 13, right? Consider, the work of God. Consider the fact that God doesn't just know what's better. He doesn't just know what's better. He knows what's best. Consider the work of God for who is able to straighten what he has bent. Verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, there it is again, consider God has made the one as well as the other. In other words, God knows that it's often the bad things and the hard times in our lives that are most beneficial and prove to be the most effective in helping us become who he wants us to be. And so Solomon challenges us to consider how pain and adversity is better than peace and prosperity for perfecting us. Again, for example, look at um, verse two. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. In other words, it's better to go to a funeral than, than a feast because at a funeral, you're forced to stare death in the face and grapple with your mortality and your eternal destiny, which, by the way, is a good thing. We learn a lot more about uh, life from going to a funeral than we do from going to the fair, the county fair, right? We all love to go to the county fair. Why? Because it numbs our minds and our dr drowns out the sound of the grass growing over our graves. That's why we like the fair. We don't have to think about death. 
One poet said it this way, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her, her when sorrow walked with me. That's one of the paradoxes of life, that, that joy can coexist with sorrow. Speaking of the Puritans, I know many of you have this resource, the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of uh, Puritan prayers and devotions, and the, the leading prayer, which is titled the Valley of Vision, um, goes like this. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, Thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision." And then it says this, Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter the, star, the stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. I think that's what Solomon is getting at here in verses 13 and 14, which, by the way, is the first time that God's name is mentioned in this section. And I think one thing a wise person does is consider God's sovereign control over all things. Consider the work of God for who is able to straighten what he has bent in the day of prosperity. Be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. You can't thwart God's will. You can't change God's will no matter how bad you want to, no matter how hard you try. God's decrees are immutable. They're not subject to human manipulation. And his sovereign ordering of our lives, God has seen fit to permit both times of prosperity and times of adversity. And God is the author of both. We discussed this uh, early on uh, during the, uh, when we were just live streaming and we weren't able to meet here together like we are this morning and we talked about God's sovereignty over the coronavirus. Job 2.10, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Isaiah 45, 6 and 7, I am the Lord and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these Lamentations chapter three, verse 37, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it, is it not from the mouth of the most high that both good and ill go forth? The point is that God ordains everything that happens in our lives, some things that make us happy and some things that make us sad. And he expects us to thank him for the good times and trust him in the bad times. 
And it's easier to trust him when we're confident that God ordains affliction in our lives because he knows that in times of prosperity, our tendency is to forget how much we need him. And so trials and difficulties teach us to to trust and obey him. I love what the psalmist said in Psalm 119. There's a little string of uh, verses about affliction. And he says this, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. In fact, he actually says, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And then he says, I know that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you've afflicted me. That's some serious faith. Thanking God, saying it is good that you've been afflicted. And God mixes the good and the bad so we won't be able to find fault with him or figure him out. I mean, look at chapter eight, verse seven. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? Verse 17, and I saw every work of God. I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know he cannot discover. In other words, we've got to let God be God. And that's the way God wants it. That's the way God likes it. And he wants us to simply submit to his sovereignty over our lives and enjoy the good days. And on the bad days, or the bad seasons, if you will, we need to remember that adversity has unpredictable and inscrutable purposes that are beyond our finite ability to understand. We have no clue what God's up to. Ray Stedman comments here, he said, given our limited narrow vision of what life is, what business have we got complaining to God about how our life is run? Let us accept the reality that we aren't wise enough to know what is good for us and then let us trust God to choose the elements we need. If prosperity is not always good, then it is equally true that adversity is not always bad. Suppose hard times do come, what then? Many good and even great things can come out of them. Every one of you are sitting here this morning a product of some trial or some difficulty, some adversity that you had to go through to get to the place that you are today in your spiritual growth and maturity. And when you were in the midst of that trial, that adversity, I am sure you wanted out of it. But now as you look back, you wouldn't change it for the world because you know you are who you are today in regard to your relationship with the Lord because of that trial, because of that adversity. Life is full of the unexpected so that we would realize that we aren't in charge of our lives. We don't control the future. And even though adversity can be painful, we can trust God that he is in control. He knows what he's doing. He's acting in love towards us and we need to be grateful for it. Look back at chapter three here for a second. Chapter three, verse 30, uh, excuse me, verse 22. 
Again, just gleaning wisdom from this wisdom book. This is wisdom literature, right? Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Psalms. This is what we call wisdom, characterized as wisdom literature. So we're just gaining wisdom this morning. Hopefully thinking about life rightly, living life rightly. Verse 22 of chapter three, I've, I've seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities for that is his, what? Lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? In other words, Solomon is simply encouraging us to, to find satisfaction in accepting our lot in life. In other words, the things that we can't change. And instead of spending our life frustrated or depressed, depressed by what, what, what God hasn't given us, we should enjoy our life and be satisfied with what God has given us, good and bad. So rather than wasting your entire life wishing that you were someone else, wishing you looked differently, wishing you were married to someone else, wishing you worked somewhere else or wishing you lived somewhere else, be satisfied with what God has sovereignly ordained for your life. Enjoy God's gifts to you knowing that God is in control and by submitting to his sovereign plan for your life, you can experience peace and joy rather than frustration and depression. Again, life's not perfect. Get over it and make the most of it. One of my former professors, Bill Barrick, has written an excellent commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes. He's the one who called it the Philippians of the Old Testament. Let me read for you what he said here. Why fret over our lack of control over the timing of events, our failure to eradicate injustice, and our inability to avoid death? God has better things for us to do than to spend our time fretting over things we cannot control. Hello? Is that not practical? There's a whole lot of fretting going on right now in this world about things we can't control. We are not to pour more effort into understanding our frustrating and uncontrollable circumstances, nor ought we to spend our time comparing our lot in life with another's. You ever guilty of that? Wishing that you were that guy or that woman or had that family, had that marriage, had that home, had that job, had that appearance. We ought not to indulge in retaliation, resentment, bitterness, or disappear into a fantasy world. Reject these reactions to life's difficult circumstances and intrinsic injustices. Abandon self-pity and despair. Thank God that he uses such circumstances to humble you, to make you more dependent upon him, and to be thankful for what he has given you to enjoy. That's good stuff, isn't it? 
Let me close by reading from Philip Ryken's commentary. Philip Ryken was uh, formerly the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church um, in Philadelphia. He assumed that role after James Montgomery Boyce uh, passed away because of cancer. And uh, he's just an outstanding preacher and, and commentator. And this is how he wrapped up his chapter on Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verses 13 and 14. He says, when something in life seems crooked, we're usually very quick to tell God how to straighten it out. (laughs) Is that true? Hey God, I'm not liking this. Uh, This thing is bent, this thing is twisted, this thing's crooked, this is messed up, and you need to fix it now. Instead, we should let God straighten us out. We're the ones that need to straighten out. In his sovereignty over our suffering, God is hard at work to accomplish our real spiritual good, not just in one way, but in many ways. Therefore, we're called to trust him even for things that seem crooked. And then I love this. He said, whenever we're having trouble believing that God knows what he's doing, the first thing we should do is consider the work of our Savior. Remember that our good shepherd once had a crook in his lot, a crook that came in the shape of a cross. In his prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked his father if there was any way to make Calvary straight instead of crooked, but there was no other way. As Jesus considered the work of God, he could see that the only way to make atonement for his people's sins was to die in their place. So Jesus suffered the crooked cross that it was, that it was his God-given lot to bear. And he trusted his father, waiting for him to straighten things out when the time was right by raising him on the third day. And then he says this, if God could straighten out something as crooked as the cross, then surely he can be trusted to do something with the crook in our lot. Would you change your disability or disease? Would you change your job or your finances? Would you change your appearance or your abilities or your situation in life? Or would you trust God for all the crooked things in life and wait for him to make them straight just like Jesus did when he died for you on the cross? He said our Savior has a word for us. Remember my love for you through the crooked cross and trust our Father to straighten everything out in his own good time. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for these little off the beaten path verses that are so rich in their wisdom, their helpfulness, their relevance, their applicability to our lives, to our present situation, our current circumstances. And so, Lord, there's a lot for us to grapple with here and just this simple, this simple command to consider your work and, and the simple question, who is able to straighten what you have bent? Lord, your ways are beyond our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And, 
I know every one of us has something in our lives we wish was different, that we wish we could change, but it will probably never change because it's what you ordained for us for your purposes and ultimately to drive us back to Jesus to find our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate happiness in him and to make us long for heaven which will be perfect. The new heavens, the new earth restored, the earth, your creation restored to its original perfection the way you originally intended it to be without sin without corruption. And so, Lord, I pray that the imperfections that, and the frustrations that we have to deal with every day in our lives, that they would just make us long to, to love Jesus more and to long more for heaven. We pray this in his name. Amen.